Donald Trump has been subpoenaed to give testimony next month before the January 6th committee. The committee's believed to have evidence the former president disseminated false allegations about the election. After the committee's vote to subpoena, Trump released a letter repeating his claims the election was illegitimate. It's Friday, October 21st. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, former Trump advisor Steve Bannon was sentenced to four months in prison today for contempt of Congress. How outdated U.S. government technology contributed to fraud and pandemic aid, such as the Paycheck Protection Program. And five native tribes in California will reclaim their right to manage and protect more than 200 miles of coastal land. There's different ways of knowing and caring for the land, and obviously it's worked for thousands and thousands of years. More on the traditional methods those tribes hope to adopt coming up. It's 401 News Headlines, and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The House Select Committee investigating last year's insurrection at the U.S. Capitol is formally requesting former President Donald Trump's cooperation. The panel issued a subpoena for Trump's testimony under oath as well as records. Here's NPR's Dustin Jones. The move comes weeks after the committee unanimously voted to hold Trump accountable for inciting the mob. The panel's chair, Democrat Benny Thompson of Mississippi, and vice chair, Republican Liz Cheney from Wyoming, wrote a letter to Trump, ordering he appear before the committee. The letter accuses the former president of personally orchestrating and overseeing an effort to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Trump called the committee, quote, a total bust after it voted to subpoena him last week. The former president has until November 4th to produce the documents, and the subpoena requires him to appear for testimony sometime around November 14th. Dustin Jones, NPR News. Earlier today, one of Trump's closest allies, Steve Bannon, was sentenced to four months in prison for refusing to comply with the House panel subpoena for his testimony and documents related to the January 6th riot. Bannon addressed reporters outside the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. We'll have a very vigorous appeals process. I've got a great legal team, and there'll be multiple areas of appeal. Bannon has been allowed to remain free pending appeal. President Biden's drumming up support for his plan to forgive hundreds of millions of dollars in student loan debt. Moments ago, he delivered a speech at Delaware State University. Our student loan plan lowers costs for Americans as they recover from the pandemic to give everybody a little more breathing room. The Biden administration's plan faces legal challenges from several GOP-led states that claim the president overstepped his authority on a plan that they have described as a government giveaway at the expense of taxpayers who did not go to college. Italy's new government will be the first headed by a woman and the most right-wing administration since World War II. NPR's Sylvia Poggioli reports the new coalition will face huge economic and international challenges, as well as internal friction. 45-year-old Giorgia Meloni heads Brothers of Italy, the hard-right party with roots in the ashes of fascism, which won the most votes in the recent election. She'll govern with the hard-right anti-immigrant League party and Go Italy, the party of former prime minister and media tycoon Silvio Berlusconi. Rising inflation and backing Ukraine will top the agenda. But Berlusconi triggered international condemnation for leaked remarks blaming Ukraine for the war and waxing poetic about his close friend, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Meloni insists the government will be firmly pro-NATO and pro-European Union. She'll present her program next week to Parliament for votes of confidence. Silvia Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. It's NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Warburton Police internal investigation has determined that allegations are credible against a former officer connected to the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. It found John Donnelly helped plan and attend the 2017 rally that resulted in the death of a counter-protester. Warburton Police and the mayor say Donnelly violated multiple department policies by being involved with extremist groups. Officials say Donnelly refused to cooperate in the investigation and resigned from the department earlier this week. A California man will plead guilty to making threatening phone calls to Tufts University. 49-year-old Sammy Sultan is charged with calling Tufts University police, claiming to be inside school buildings with weapons. The U.S. attorney for Massachusetts says Sultan could face up to five years in prison. He pleaded guilty to making harassing phone calls in California in 2017. Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll is urging people to take public transportation if they're planning to celebrate Halloween in the city. Driscoll says the streets of Salem have been jammed during the October celebration. She says the record crowds are causing a traffic nightmare and making parking scarce. Visiting in Salem in October is fun. It's festive. But visiting when you come here by car is not so great. You're going to sit in traffic for hours only to find there isn't enough parking. The MBTA will be running additional commuter rail trains between Boston and Salem for the final weekends of October. The Salem Ferry from Boston's Long Wharf is also an option. A case of Legionnaire's disease at an assisted living facility in Auburn is under investigation. The Brookdale Eddy Pond says it has not found the source of the contamination. Legionnaire's is a type of pneumonia spread through water droplets. The facility is working with a water treatment company to help stop the spread of bacteria. In the forecast, beautiful day out there right now. Clear skies tonight, cooling to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunny again, a little bit warmer, rising to about 68 tomorrow. And then for Sunday, lots of clouds. Maybe rain, too, falling to about 62. Could see some clouds for the first few days of next week. 56 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ProQuest, whose website, Black Freedom Struggle in the U.S., curates 2,000 documents related to the fight for civil and human rights. Open to all at ProQuest.com slash go slash black freedom. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington, D.C. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. First came this unanimous vote among members of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. And today came the next and extraordinary step. The committee has formally issued a subpoena compelling former President Donald J. Trump to testify and turn over documents. Now, expectations that the former president will actually comply anytime soon have been low to non-existent. And we're going to talk about the stakes and possibilities here with attorney Nick Ackerman, a former federal prosecutor who also helped prosecute the Watergate case. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Nice to have you. Okay, so let me first ask you this. What avenues does former President Trump have to respond to the subpoena if Trump wanted to legally avoid testifying or legally avoid turning over any of these documents? What could he do here? Well, I think the one thing he could do if he just wanted to do it legally without incurring any kind of liability was simply the um, letter that's sent to him says to him that if he intends to assert his Fifth Amendment privilege, Mm -hmm. meaning that if he were to answer questions truthfully, it would tend to incriminate him, that he should so notify the committee. uh, And it would seem to me upon that notification, 
um, he would probably be excused for attending personally. That would be the proper way to do it if he's trying to get away from having to testify at all. What about if he's trying to get away from turning over any more documents? Well, even the documents, I think he would still take the Fifth Amendment on. Okay. And he could do that. Um, unless, of course, you know, these are government documents. Now, it could very well be that many of the documents that are called for here uh, might be in those documents that were seized by um, the FBI in that raid on Mar-a-Lago. We don't know. Um, but one has to wonder. Right. Now, what would be the consequences if Trump doesn't comply with the subpoena whatsoever and doesn't invoke the fifth, as you just explained? Isn't it a crime to defy a congressional subpoena? Oh, it is. Look what happened to Steve Bannon today. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's going to serve time in jail as a result. Um, But the other consequences are he can be held in contempt. Um, There's two avenues there. One is to go through the court system which is not really a viable option now. Uh, If it turns out that the Republicans take the House in the upcoming midterm elections, uh, the committee will be disbanded and any effort in court to try and enforce that subpoena will also um, kind of disappear at that point. Uh, The one option that they do have is that the House itself, Congress, has the inherent power Um, to basically uh, enforce a contempt. And it's been held by the Supreme Court. It's been upheld. Uh, It was last done, I think, in the Teapot Dome scandal. Um, And they could send the sergeant of arms um, to Trump, um, arrest him, bring him into the uh, committee room, sit him down on the chair. And at that point, uh, the committee could start questioning him. Okay. Well, for a moment, let's inhabit this world where Trump actually does testify and actually does turn over more documents. Can you lay out explicitly what does he risk there? Well, first of all, anything he says will be used against him. Uh, He's going to be creating a transcript and statement under oath. Uh, And if he lies, he can be charged for perjury. So if I were his defense lawyer, I would strongly urge him not to testify because what he's going to wind up doing Uh, is getting himself in more trouble than he is now. I mean, this is what happened to most of the major defendants in the Watergate scandal. Uh, They wound up going into the Senate Select Committee that was investigating the Watergate break-in, and they lied. And then they were indicted for obstructing justice with respect to the investigation itself into the Watergate, but they were also charged uh, with lying before Congress and charged with perjury. Um, So that is the biggest risk he has here for testifying. Well, can I just ask you, because you mentioned Watergate, I mean, you lived through and helped prosecute one of the most famous presidential scandals in history. And I just wonder, as you're taking in all that's unfolded with the January 6th investigation, how does it compare to Watergate in your mind personally? Well, in a lot of ways, this has gone way beyond Watergate. I mean, Watergate although it wasn't narrow. It involved a break-in to the Democratic National Committee. It was very serious. I was basically trying to undermine an election again. Um, And it was being orchestrated by the President of the United States. Um, Here with Donald Trump, I mean, if you just compare the January 6th um, insurrection, I mean, the idea that a president would actually try and, you know, keep himself in power um, and stop the, tr- the peaceful transfer of power through force and through violence um, 
is, you know, pretty incomparable to anything that happens in Watergate. That is attorney and former Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. As Republicans try to regain control of Congress, they're hoping to improve their numbers among Latino voters in this year's elections, particularly in Texas. But it's not clear if the party's outreach is creating a significant enough edge for Republicans when it comes to the Latino vote. And Paris Ashley Lopez reports. It's a sunny afternoon, and members of Libre Initiative Action are knocking on doors in a quiet suburban neighborhood in Mission, Texas, which sits right on the U.S.-Mexico border. They're getting the word out about Monica De La Cruz, a Republican congressional candidate running for a newly competitive congressional seat in South Texas against Democrat Michelle Vallejo. One person they talked to was a man named Fidel Villasenor. Buenos dias, sir. Uh, mi nombre es Gerardo Villarreal. Vengo de Libre Action. One of the canvassers, Gerardo Villarreal, asked Villasenor if he's voting for the Republican candidate in the upcoming election. Estamos hablando con los votantes de este año y les estamos preguntando si usted va a votar por Monica de la Cruz este año. Via Senor said he doesn't know yet, but George Martinez, an advisor and spokesperson for Libre Initiative Action, steps in and asks if there's an issue he really cares about that could maybe motivate him to vote. De casualidad, si si las elecciones fueran hoy y y no sabe si votar por Mónica, qué qué es la la tema más importante para usted ahorita, uh, la inflación, la economía, la salud. At the end there, Villasenor says inflation is his big issue. Martinez tells him about the Republican candidate's stance on government spending and inflation and then leaves him with a leaflet. Martinez later says most Latinos he's talked to in this area are most concerned about the economy and rising prices. That's what's hurting families and we're feeling, everyone's feeling it, whether you're going to the grocery store or uh, anything that you consume, it's, prices are high right now. Republicans and conservative groups in Texas are hoping the economy is an issue that will boost their numbers among Latino voters. In 2020, Donald Trump did better than expected here. But nationwide, and even here in Texas, Democrats still have an edge with Latino voters. In fact, South Texas has long been a Democratic stronghold. Democrats opened a national field office in the area earlier this year and have been running radio ads in an effort to hold on to their support in South Texas. But research shows Latinos have pretty soft ties to political parties. And one point that really illustrates this is the fact that roughly one in 10 Latino voters who identified as either a Democrat or a Republican held political views that more closely aligned with the opposing party. Jens Manuel Krogstad with the Pew Research Center says this is why Latino voters are more like swing voters compared to the rest of the country, which is pretty polarized. Latinos don't always neatly fit into the nation's two-party system. And, and the survey showed that Latinos in some ways are charting their own course. In fact, he says, surveys he's looked at show many Latinos don't see much of a difference between the two parties. But the reason why Latinos are so different is mostly because neither party has sustained any meaningful outreach to these communities. Back in South Texas, there are some community groups, namely a nonpartisan group called Lupe, that has been plugging away for years at getting these voters engaged. On this day, Joaquin Garcia and his team are letting folks know that an election is coming up. 
Romero Vega was among a small number of people Garcia talked to that day. Tiene dos minutos. Ah, bueno, en un minuto los vemos entonces. Garcia asked Vega if he has time for a few questions. The first is whether he's prepared to vote this fall. Una para preguntarle, verdad, si si ya está listo para votar en estas próximas elecciones. Okay. Um, este, pues todavía no, todavía no, no muy bien, no, no, no sé no sabe ni, muy bien. No sé ni quién está corriendo ni. Vega says that he has no idea what's going on or who's running. So Garcia leaves him with some basic information about how to vote. Later, Garcia says he's actually a little surprised, considering all the ads and attention in South Texas lately, that a lot of people in the area don't even know an election is coming up. We don't know why that is. I mean, they keep, you know, repeating it on TV and on, on the radio stations. But, I mean, a lot of these people, you know, have two, three jobs. They're not paying attention to elections. Their thing is getting money to sustain their families. So sometimes they don't see politics as, as a priority. For their needs. And this is not a small obstacle for Republicans in Texas, says Brandon Roddinghouse with the University of Houston. That's the biggest challenge that Republicans face in terms of trying to get a vote stabilized and get them to motivate towards the Republican candidates. Besides competitive races in South Texas, Republicans are hoping Latinos will, particularly in rural areas, help reelect Republicans in statewide offices this year. That includes Governor Greg Abbott as he faces a challenge from Democrat Beto O'Rourke. Ashley Lopez, NPR News, McAllen, Texas. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, what went wrong behind the scenes of the Paycheck Protection Program during the pandemic? We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. And the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, icaboston.org. A set of big gains to finish the week on Wall Street. The market had its best week since June. The Dow rose 2.5%, 749 points, to close at 31,083. S&P gained about 2 and 4 tenths of a percent. It finished at 37.53. The Nasdaq closed 2 and 3 tenths of a percent higher to end the day at 10,860. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. Union truck drivers for the region's largest food distributor, Cisco, are going back to work Sunday after they reached a contract agreement with the company yesterday. The truck driver's strike lasted nearly three weeks. It shut down operations at the Cisco facility in Plimpton. Cisco distributes food to schools, hospitals, and senior living homes. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. And Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. 
In the forecast, blue skies out there now. Calm winds clear overnight tonight, cooling to the mid-40s. And for tomorrow, sunny again. A little bit warmer, rising to about 68 degrees. Sunday, a crush of clouds, maybe some afternoon rain falling to about 62. This is 90.9 WBUR, 56 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Remember the Paycheck Protection Program? It gave potentially forgivable loans to small businesses to keep workers employed during the COVID shutdowns. It was easy to get the loans and easy to get them forgiven. But a lot of that money was lost to fraud or went to companies that thrived during the pandemic. That's partly because the government prioritized speed over accuracy and put in place very few safeguards. Here's MIT economist David Otter. There was just no targeting. There was no ability to send the money just to the firms that need it. It's as if you came home from work one day and you walked into your kitchen and you notice, oh my God, there's a small fire by the stove. I need to put this out. But you don't have a fire extinguisher. So you go outside, you connect a huge hose to a fire hydrant, and you come in and you douse your entire house with water. Well, that would certainly put out the fire, but it would be a very costly thing to do. Otter co-authored a study on this. It's called the $800 billion Paycheck Protection Program, Where Did the Money Go and Why Did It Go There? And the conclusion? Most of that money did not go to workers who otherwise would have lost jobs. In fact, we estimate somewhere between you know one in three and one in four dollars went to that purpose. And the other two out of three or the other three out of four dollars ultimately went to business owners, their creditors, their suppliers, all of whom are disproportionately pretty affluent. So about three quarters of all the PPP money, some two thirds to three quarters, ended up in the top 20 percent of all U.S. households. But Otter says there's another deeper problem with the program. He also blames outdated government technology. He jokes that while conspiracy theorists worry about the deep state, we should actually be concerned about the shallow state. Which is a lack of administrative capacity to handle real-time, really complicated problems involving a ton of money. He says many other Western countries did a far better job of distributing their pandemic relief money. And for this week's episode of All Tech Considered, I asked him to explain why. Many European countries, and also Canada, uh, have something that's called short-time work. Short-time work is when a company is facing economic hardship, it may reduce headcount, typically by reducing the number of hours uh, that workers are employed. And then uh, the government will pay back some of those hours by reimbursing the firm or reimbursing the worker directly. So that requires the government has a pretty good real-time view, it doesn't have to be you know hour to hour, of uh, the payroll of many firms. And there was no incentive for firms to claim hours that were being reduced that were not because the government could actually see them. 
Can European countries do that because their government technologies are more modern and sophisticated? Absolutely. Most countries, you don't actually file taxes at the end of the year. The government sends you a tax bill. It's not necessary to do all the uh, data collection that American households do because that information is already centralized. The government's already collecting the data. Exactly. But let me make a point because I, I think many people hearing this and go, oh my God, you know, we don't want an intrusive government doing X, Y, and Z, seeing all these things that households do. And I think it makes many people uncomfortable to hear that. However, these data are already being collected by the federal government, just not in a timely way. So every state has an unemployment insurance system, all 50 of them, and they all get from employers every quarter the number of the workers, their names, how much they paid them, et cetera. And then all those data are reported to the federal government, but it happens at a snail's pace. And all of those state UI systems are 50, 60, 70 years old running COBOL, a programming language that was last in heavy use during the Y2K crisis when programmers had to come out of retirement to fix systems that were old and outdated 20 years ago. So some fault to the government, some yeah. fault to technology. Have our government technological systems always been outdated and this is a chronic problem? No, not at all. The United States led the world in administrative systems. We were the first country to use computers to uh, do data collection. So the 1890 U.S. census of populations was read by a punch card machine. It was the predecessor to IBM. It was the beginning of the information technology revolution. We led the world in setting up surveys like the current population system. We led the world in having a centralized tax authority. The U.S. was way ahead of the curve in terms of the efficiency, the quality, the reliability of administrative systems. And all of that began to ebb and ultimately decay in the 1980s when we decided government was not the solution, government was the problem, and began to underinvest in these systems that we had built. So in many ways, we're running on the fumes of investments that were made decades earlier. It sounds like you're almost saying it's self-fulfilling incompetence, meaning we starve our government agencies and then they don't perform well and we think they're incompetent and it's this vicious cycle. I fully agree. If you go into a post office <laughs> in America, you just think, oh my God, what has gone wrong here? The, the signs are 20 years out of date. The people, you know, they're understaffed. It's not working well. The truth is the U.S. has an amazing postal system. We still have some of the lowest rates and the most efficient mail distribution, but the postal system doesn't have the ability to raise the revenue to pay for modern staffing, modern conveniences. And so it appears to be archaic. And eventually people say the government can't do anything right. Post office can't even run itself. But of course, that's a choice by Congress. If there is another economic crisis in the U.S. that results in more government financial intervention, how should we do it better next time? Or are we currently not equipped to do it better next time? We are not equipped. We could be equipped. At such a time, certainly will come. There will be other crises. There always are. I would say the most natural place to start is with the unemployment insurance system, to have an ability to see what firms are paying workers in real time. And if we were to build a modern centralized unemployment insurance system, the government would still be collecting the data, it would still have a big role in making the payments. But then when the next crisis occurred, we wouldn't just have to write blanket checks to many, many businesses. We could just say, well, let's look at your payroll. How many workers, you know, how much did you reduce hours? How much did you reduce headcount? That's what we're going to compensate those workers for. If some of our government technological systems are five to seven decades old, as you said, they don't just need a small upgrade. They need a massive overhaul. So how optimistic are you that these systems are really going to improve much anytime soon? 
my pessimism about that is only a function of the decision makers, not the feasibility. You can buy computing capacity from Amazon or from Microsoft or from Google. You don't even have to buy the hardware anymore. And the government contracts on this scale all the time. It does it through the military. But we don't spend that on our social infrastructure, and we pay a price for that. David Otter is a professor of economics at MIT. David, thank you. Thank you very much. Support for All Tech Considered comes from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is NPR News. This is WBUR. Celtics are down in Miami tonight to play the Heat. 7.30 game time. The Bruins play tomorrow afternoon at the Garden. And New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick is not saying who's going to be his quarterback Monday night against the Chicago Bears. Mac Jones is recovering from an injury he sustained in the third game of the season. Third-string backup Bailey Zappi has started the last two games. At his press conference today, Belichick did say that Jones's condition is improving. This is WBUR. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. The U.S. dollar is soaring against other currencies, adding to fears of a global financial meltdown. When that happened in 1985, governments took action. So they got together the finance ministers of the world and came to this deal where they would all take action to bring the dollar down. Could that happen today? I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. A former senior advisor to former President Trump is facing four months in prison and a $6,500 fine for contempt of Congress. That's less than what prosecutors were seeking, though. Steve Bannon was sentenced today in Washington, D.C. on two counts after refusing to comply with a subpoena from the House Select Committee looking into last year's attack on the U.S. Capitol. Bannon spoke to reporters outside the federal courthouse. I respect... Uh, The judge, the sentence he came down with today is his decision. I fully respect, I've been totally respectful of this entire process uh, on the legal side. Prosecutors were asking the judge to impose a hefty six-month sentence and a $200,000 fine, while Bannon's lawyers were seeking probation and no jail time. 
Bannon remains free while his attorneys appeal today's decision. The midterm elections are less than three weeks away, and President Biden is making the case that Democrats offer a brighter economic future than Republicans. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, voters have consistently ranked the economy as a top concern heading into November. Biden noted the federal deficit dropped $1.4 trillion in the past year, the largest one-year drop in U.S. history. He said there are positive economic signs that Americans are feeling now, lower gas prices and low unemployment. Biden said Republicans want to abolish a 15 percent minimum tax on corporations and make the Trump tax cuts permanent, which he said would favor corporations and the rich. The kind of policies that have failed the country before and will fail it again. And it'll mean more wealth to the very wealthy, higher inflation for the middle class. That's the choice we're facing. Biden said he thinks public support will shift towards Democrats in the closing days of the election cycle. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, the White House. Stocks finished higher to end the week on Wall Street. The Dow up almost two and a half percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu announced new green standards for building sidewalk curbs at intersections. WBUR's Paula Mora reports the idea is to reduce stormwater flooding and increase green space. Curb extensions are where the sidewalk is widened and expanded into the street at intersections so cars can see pedestrians more easily. Mayor Michelle Wu said the city will require new construction to incorporate green infrastructure designs when building curb extensions. So whether that's a green space, like a rain garden or a tree pit, we are committed to not only making our streets safer, but greener and more resilient. The new design requirements have two main ideas. One is to use green materials such as porous and permeable pavement. Another aspect is to offer environmental benefits such as including trees or rain gardens that can help mitigate urban heat island effect. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. A Canton man is facing charges related to the murder of a 15-year-old Dorchester boy. Zontre Mack is the second person to be arrested in connection with the shooting death of Curtis Ashfield in July. A Boston man was arrested last month. The head of the Charles Regatta in Boston is underway now. There will be races all day tomorrow and Sunday, too. The Ukrainian national rowing team will be among those on the Charles River. WBR's Dave Feniff spoke with the man who worked to get them into the event. Andre Ivanchuk is the head coach of the Simmons University and Riverside Boat Club women's teams. He's also a former member of the Ukrainian national team. He says having the national team compete here gives Ukrainians back home some time away from the war. When you are try to make your routine, your regular life, you want to live in the comfort and you have to deal with the war every day. And when you like hear like Ukrainians are on the world stage, they are successful, they fighting for, for them and they feel that, they, they're happy. Even Chuk says there were three crews from Ukraine competing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Fadif. The forecast is next. WBUR supporters include Boston University's Metropolitan College. Offering part-time graduate programs in applied business analytics. On campus or online. Learn the concepts, tools, and techniques used in the process of making informed, data-driven business decisions. Learn more at bu.edu met. Nice weather for the opening day of the Head of the Charles. Rowers tomorrow should luck out as well. Sunny tomorrow, temperatures about 68. Sunday, though, could be cloudy and wet, just the chance of afternoon showers. And uh, right now in Boston, it is 56 degrees at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A federal judge says former Trump advisor Steve Bannon is headed to prison for four months, but not before he gets a chance to appeal his conviction for contempt of Congress. Bannon's lawyer David Schoen addressed reporters outside the courthouse. It's an extraordinary move to permit a stay pending appeal. It was the appropriate move. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson is at the federal courthouse in Washington, and she's with us now to talk more about this case. Hey, Carrie. Hey there. So can you just first remind us why the House Select Committee investigating January 6th wanted information from Steve Bannon? The House panel says it thinks Bannon might have known a lot more about the planning for January 6th. Lawmakers pointed out a day before the assault on the Capitol, Steve Bannon said, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. And Bannon also participated in meetings at the War Room at the Willard Hotel before the mob stormed the Capitol on January 6th. And even before the 2020 election, Bannon was talking about how former President Donald Trump might refuse to recognize the results. Well, let me ask you, because four months is a bit shorter than what prosecutors were asking for, right? Like, how did the judge arrive at this sentence? Was there an explanation? Yeah, prosecutors were asking for six months, and Bannon wanted probation, but that was a no-go for this judge. Uh, judge Carl Nichols found the defiance of Congress was quite serious and that lawmakers have every reason to investigate what happened on January 6th. But he also said Bannon may have gotten legal advice that was overly aggressive or misguided. And that issue, whether Bannon relied on his lawyer and whether a jury should have heard that evidence, will be at the heart of Bannon's appeal. The judge is allowing Bannon to remain free pending appeal, and he imposed a fine of $6,500 for Steve Bannon. Well, I know that you've been at the courthouse. What was the atmosphere like in the courtroom? You know, Steve Bannon does a lot of talking outside court, but he said nothing to the judge today. This case was all about whether Bannon flouted the Congress, flouted the subpoena from Congress, and deflected by attacking his political enemies and the justice system. Now, that's exactly what his lawyer did in court. The lawyer said the January 6th committee had a partisan political agenda, and he said Bannon had no remorse for his actions. In fact, lawyer David Schoen said Bannon's contempt of Congress could have been a lot worse. But on the other hand, the process prosecutor in this case, J.P. Cooney, said Bannon fabricated excuses like bad legal advice and bogus claims of executive privilege, which he said didn't apply to Bannon since Trump never formally asserted the privilege and Bannon hadn't worked in the White House for years. This prosecutor said no one's above the law, and he wanted the judge to deliver that message to other people, too. So I'm wondering, what do you think, Carrie? Like, what kinds of implications could this sentence have for other people facing charges at the moment? 
Well, if an appeals court eventually buys Bannon's argument, that could have a broader impact on the ability of Congress to enforce its subpoenas. But even before this appeal gets underway, we have another case of contempt of Congress right in this courthouse. Next month, former uh, Trump trade advisor Peter Navarro is going to trial on charges that he blew off the January 6th committee, too. And this afternoon, the committee issued a subpoena to former President Trump as well. So we'll see what happens there in the coming weeks. That is NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson at the Federal Courthouse in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Carrie. Happy to be here. In California, five Native tribes will reclaim their right to manage and protect more than 200 miles of coastal land. They'll do work like monitoring salmon migration and testing for toxins in shellfish. They'll also be educating others about their traditions. Tribes have obviously been stewarding these areas, you know, since time immemorial. That's Megan Rocha. She's on the Leadership Council of the Tribal Marine Stewards Network, and she's executive director of Rezagini Rancheria, a tribe of Yurok people. When we spoke the other day, she told me there's valuable indigenous traditional knowledge that can be used to manage the land, Methods that differ from how land has been managed more recently. The way seaweed is harvested, for example, you know, there's a particular approach. It can be picked multiple times a year. Harvesting mussels is another example. Rocha says the state of California restricts mussel harvests to just a few months each year. But through traditional knowledge, we know that you can harvest mussels for nearly all year. It's just where you gather them and how you gather them. These 200 miles of coastal land are part of the ancestral territory of these five tribes. That's why they wanted to be able to manage the land again. Tribes feel like it's their inherent responsibility and, you know, people have been displaced because of the practices from the state of California and just development over the years. And so there's always been this like pull and need and responsibility to manage and and take care of these places. 200 miles of coastline is a lot of land. Do they have the resources and money to manage it? Um, No, most tribes do not have the financial resources. This is the model that we're using so that the state of California can invest in indigenous communities so that we can build that capacity and assume that, like I said, that inherent responsibility to become stewards. It is a large area and that's the ultimate goal is to steward the entire ancestral territory. And we're doing that, you know, a piece by piece at a time. This partnership comes after years of advocacy from indigenous tribes. How did you react when you heard that it was finally happening? Oh, I'm I'm beyond overjoyed. It brings tears to my eyes, you know, thinking about all the hard work that's gone into this. This really started many years ago when the state passed the Marine Life Protection Act and looked to put in a network of marine protected areas along the entire California coast. And in that process, there was no recognition of the unceded rights of tribes to continue to gather and be connected to these places. And so it started off very adversarial. I was involved involved in helping design the marine protected areas, but there was a consistent message that tribes were not going to stop using these areas and continuing to harvest and that the state really didn't have the legal authority to, to stop that. To sort of come to this place where We're collaborating, we're talking about co-management, the state is investing in these tribal communities. It's just, it's amazing and I'm really hopeful. Megan, another important aspect of your work is cultural education, not just educating officials and scientists, but young indigenous people too. 
What do you most want lawmakers and the general public to understand about what you consider the benefits of Indigenous knowledge? I think it's important for them to understand that there's different ways of knowing and caring for the land. And obviously, it's worked for thousands and thousands of years. We're in a climate crisis now. We're seeing the die-off of really important ecological and cultural species. We're seeing warmer oceans. And, you know, we really need to look and listen to the people who've been taking care of this land forever. We need to uphold, you know, the children. They really are going to be the future caretakers to make sure that they know where they come from, that they have pride in who they are, that they hold this knowledge and, and are able to continue it on is extremely important. That's the biggest part about this work is returning tribal stewardship but it's also about cultural lifeways, providing tribal workforce development opportunities, and all of that really underlines the concept of community healing and health and wellness for communities that have really been marginalized and pushed out of the places that, that they've been forever. Megan Rocha is a member of the Tribal Marine Stewards Network Leadership Council and executive director of Rezagini Rancheria, a tribe of Yurok people. Megan, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Voters in Massachusetts can cast a ballot for the November election in person starting tomorrow. One of the ballot questions concerns dental insurers. It asks whether dental insurers can be made to spend the majority of what they make in premiums on patient care. There is a backstory about how question two ended up on the ballot. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel is here to fill us in. Hi, Gabriella. Hi there. So let's start off with the basics. Just what would ballot question two do if it's passed? Ballot question two would require that dental insurers put at least 83% of what they get in premiums toward actual dental care and initiatives to improve the quality of care. They wouldn't be able to use that money to pay for their own administrative costs or employee or executive salaries. Now, this kind of system already exists for health insurers under Obamacare. But if this ballot measure passes, Massachusetts would be the first state to have it in place for dental insurance. Now, the measure would also require dental insurance companies to release more financial information. Right now, the public data are so limited, we don't actually know how much dental insurers spend on patient care, although we do have that information for health insurers. So this sounds like more regulations on the insurance industry or the dental insurance industry. Um, Are dental insurance companies on board with this? No, they are not. The No campaign is backed by dental insurers. They warn that costs of dental care will increase if the ballot measure passes and some people could lose their coverage. But the yes side of this ballot question is backed by dentists. They refute those claims and they say it will help ensure customers get good value for their dental insurance and will increase accountability for insurers. Evan Horowitz at Tufts University has done some analysis of this, and he says this measure could increase prices, but he says he doesn't see a big jump. Horowitz says the crux of the question is who gets the money patients pay for insurance? Is it dentists or insurers? It's not clear that this ballot initiative was ever designed really to solve a problem for patients. It's designed to intervene in an ongoing dispute between insurers and dentists. It's about where the money in the world of dental insurance, the world of dental care goes, how it gets distributed. 
And, you know, this is a pretty technical question being put to voters. How did it end up on the ballot in the first place? Yeah, there is quite a story here. It all goes back to one orthodontist, Mohab Rizkala. He is based in Somerville, and he told me that he's, quote, at war with dental insurers. This all started about a decade ago. I made a personal and perhaps even spiritual decision that I was going to solve the dental insurance problem for the nation. Rizkala says he believes large dental insurers have funneled millions of dollars in profits to their parent companies, despite the fact that many are nonprofits. Also, he says his patients aren't able to get the dental care they need because it's not covered by insurance. He is particularly concerned about the state's Medicaid dental program, which is administered by a third party that's called DentaQuest, which is a sister company of Delta Dental. He says it's reduced coverage for patients with low incomes. Your lower jaw could be attached to your foot and they would say you don't need dental care. I mean, the severity of these problems that were not being covered were crazy. They had no scientific basis. And so I sued them. Rizkala is a litigious guy. He sued multiple times. He's also tried to get lawmakers to act. And so now he's brought this to voters. When it became clear that this was going to be on the ballot, we saw groups like the American Dental Association and the Massachusetts Dental Society get on board. They say they hope this is a model for other states to follow. How does uh, Delta Dental respond to the allegations that it's reaping profits while limiting benefits for patients? Yes. So I reached out to the company and they sent me to Doug Rubin, who is working on the No on Two campaign. He says these claims are wrong. And he reiterated their argument that this ballot measure would increase prices and decrease uh, dental coverage. Although, again, outside experts don't think it will have that big of an effect on the system at all. But here's Rubin of the No campaign. This is one person's personal grievance here. And unfortunately, that personal grievance will have very negative impacts for anybody who has dental insurance in Massachusetts. I should add that the state attorney general's office has sued Rizkala, saying he defrauded Medicaid and kept patients wearing braces longer than necessary so he could reap financial benefits. Rizkala, in turn, says this is retaliation for the times he's sued. So as you can tell, it's a longstanding and messy fight behind question two. And thank you for telling us about it. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel, thank you again. Thank you. And our WBUR Voter Guide parses out all the ballot questions. Go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's On Beckett, running at the Paramount Theater in Boston, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS. Fall at its finest today. Blue skies, calm winds, clear skies overnight tonight, cooling to the 40s. Tomorrow, sunny again, a little warmer, rising to 68 degrees. Then for Sunday, plenty of clouds moving in, maybe some afternoon rain as well. Temperatures about 62. WBUR supporters include Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. 
Recently on Wait Wait, Ralph Macchio, the Karate Kid himself, admitted he really likes that movie's anthem, You're the Best Around. In recent times, on the Long Island Expressway, when I am cooking, <laughs> I'm cranking that mofo. And I'm, <laughs> I'm Peter Sagel. Join us this week as our panelists do their own last-minute training montage on stage in Boston. That's Wait Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Time is running out if you're hoping to book a relatively inexpensive flight over the holidays. Airlines say demand is strong and prices are rising quickly, and that means airlines are back to pulling in huge profits. From Chicago, NPR's David Shaper reports. Airline executives this week are as gleeful as kids unwrapping holiday presents as they report big third quarter profits. The demand for air travel remains very strong. That's Delta Airlines CEO Ed Bastian noting that pandemic-weary travelers are back. After two years of delaying travel, it is clear that consumers are getting out and traveling the world. And Bastian predicts it'll be a very strong holiday season a feeling echoed over at United by Chief Commercial Officer Andrew Nosella. We are definitely seeing a lot of strength for the holidays. or obviously approaching the Thanksgiving time period, and our bookings are incredibly strong. And Nosella notes a significant change in holiday travel. The bookings are a little bit different this year in that they're more spread out across multiple days. That definitely is a new travel pattern for us. Fewer Thanksgiving travelers are flying out the Wednesday before and heading home the Sunday after. Those who are able to work remotely are staying longer and spreading out their travel over a week or more. So the Mondays and Tuesdays before and after the holiday are busier. And the same is true at Christmas time, too. As for airfares? Overall, the Thanksgiving and Christmas airfares are much higher than last year. But last year was still a pandemic-impacted holiday season. Haley Berg is lead economist for the travel search and booking app Hopper. and She says fares are up 40% or more on some routes because demand is surging while the airlines are not yet back to full capacity. Which means we're going to have fewer flights available and more travelers looking to either go home or go on vacation for the holidays. That means that you might be paying a much higher price and not be able to get a seat on the specific flight that you want to take. Berg recommends booking holiday travel now because prices are only going to go up more. And she warns that there will likely be some chaos for holiday travelers. We do expect the holiday season to be very busy, and that does mean we'll see higher cancellation and delay rates. That said, we're not expecting to see such high volumes of cancellation and delays like we saw this summer. Across the industry, airlines say they've been hiring and training more flight crew personnel to prevent the staffing shortages that caused widespread flight disruptions over the summer. And they've cut back on flights to more realistically match their schedules to staffing levels. But some in the industry aren't so sure. Right now, management continues to stuff the holiday turkey with uncertainty. Dennis Tager is a 737 pilot for American Airlines and spokesman for the pilots union there. He says his airline has not yet fixed the problematic scheduling that left little room for air when bad weather hits or other problems arise. I can tell you, I just got my schedule for November. Our schedules are loaded up to the max again. There's not going to be much room. Union pilots and flight attendants at other airlines raised similar concerns. But Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said this week that airlines do seem better prepared for the upcoming holiday travel season than they were for the tumultuous summer. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago. 
October is a great month for sports. Baseball's playoffs are at a fever pitch, the NFL and NBA seasons are revving up, and one of the biggest events in esports is also underway. They've got him on top of it. Stout is going for the kill, but does he have the damage? Needs to rent, gets the shutdown. Whoa! Jackie Love steals the dragon, and with Elder Knight goes League of Legends is one of the most popular video games in the world, and right now during its world championships, the game's best players are competing for a piece of the more than $2 million prize pool. Emily Rand is an analyst and commentator with the League Championship Series, and she's here to tell us more about the growth of esports, the appeal of watching them, and how this often male-dominated space is striving to be more inclusive. Hey, Emily. Hello. So these games have a huge viewership, millions of people are tuning in, but for people who do not play this game or follow it as closely as you do, give us a sense of what they're tuning in to see. League of Legends is a fantasy video game with all sorts of weird creatures, but then the characters themselves are really fun and creative. You know, if you want to go in and play a cool frost archer, you can do that. If you want to ride a wild boar around, you can do that. As for the game itself in a competitive way, there's essentially kind of a heavily stylized fantasy map. And the objective ultimately is for you and your four teammates to take down the opponent's base that's on the other side of the map. Esports can be difficult to follow if you're not already plugged into how a specific video game works. It's closer to watching like high-speed chess rather than, say, a soccer match. As an analyst and commentator, it's your job to get across the emotional core of what's happening. How do you do that? The trick to making someone care about a traditional sports player is very similar, right? You just have to tell their story in a compelling way. If I am talking about the heartbreak of Jackie Love, that's his gamer handle. He is a player on a Chinese team called Top Esports that actually, despite really high expectations, failed to qualify for the upcoming playoff round. And he had this heart-crushing interview on stage where he kind of choked up and apologized to his fans. I think the ultimate core of why anyone follows any sport, regardless of whether it's an esport or a traditional sport, they want to connect with the players. They want to see themselves in a player or they want to be able to follow a player's story. So I think in that way, it's very, very similar. League of Legends players, fans, even casters are overwhelmingly male. What do you think can be done to grow the diversity in this sport? I think a lot of that can be at least mitigated to some extent by some sort of social outreach, creating different programs. I know internally I've offered to reach out to like junior highs and high schools and, and stuff like that to try to get a little bit more of a grassroots program started, both with getting access to PCs and just making it seem more socially acceptable, I guess. Because I know growing up, for example... I played a game called StarCraft, and my brother also played it. Um, we played it together. And the big difference for the two of us was that my brother had a lot of friends that played it, whereas none of my friends played it. And I couldn't, like, 
hang out with my brother and his friends and play it because they were like, we don't want you to play with us. That's kind of a dumb story, but there are a lot of like social factors, I guess, that start really young. Um, and so that's why I think that like any sort of outreach or just seeing that women do exist in the space uh, is obviously going to help. Emily Rand is an analyst and commentator for the video game League of Legends. The World Championships wrap up on November 5th. Emily, thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Japaigo, committed to delivering transformative healthcare solutions for women and families. Japaigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at jhpiego.org. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. WBUR supporters include Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Inflation in the U.S. remains stubbornly high, and that's leading many Americans to cut back on spending. We were going to take the grandchildren to Disney World, and we ended up not taking them because it was that expensive. The prices have skyrocketed everywhere. We'll look at what's happening around the world. It's Friday, October 21st. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Liz Truss is leaving her role as British Prime Minister after a very short tenure. Part of the reason might be her tax plan. One thing that was immediately evident was that this would increase the British budget deficit, roughly doubling compared to what it had been for a long time. Coming up, what the U.S. can learn from the economic meltdown in the U.K. Also ahead, country music artists Tanya Tucker and Brandy Carlisle on their new documentary. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The House committee investigating the deadly January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol has officially subpoenaed former President Donald Trump. They want him to testify under oath on or about November 14th and to provide documents. The committee says it has overwhelming evidence that Trump personally orchestrated and oversaw an effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. It's not clear if Trump will comply with the subpoena. And former Trump advisor Steve Bannon has been sentenced to four months in prison and a $6,500 fine for contempt of Congress in the January 6th investigation. And Pierce Kerry Johnson has more. Congress wanted documents and testimony from Bannon a day before the assault on the Capitol. Steve Bannon said, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. And Congress wanted to know why he said that. Uh, Congress also pointed out that Bannon was involved in planning for the political rally on the 
lips on January 6th and some of the strategy for former President Trump. And lawmakers on the January 6th panel also suspected Bannon knew a lot more about the likelihood of violence that day on Capitol Hill. NPR's Carrie Johnson. Bannon is free pending an appeal. The third full week of testimony has wrapped up in the trial of Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and four others in connection with that attack on the Capitol. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more. Defense attorneys resumed their cross-examination of former FBI Special Agent Whitney Drew, who had walked the jury through videos, text messages, and walkie-talkie recordings documenting the defendant's actions on January 6th. Videos show four of the defendants inside the Capitol that day, while Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes remained outside but in communication. Drew acknowledged she was unaware of any written communication in which Rhodes expressly orders the others to storm the Capitol. Prosecutors say they hope to rest their case at the end of next week. Attorneys for the defendant say they may need up to two weeks to present their defense, which means the trial may last into mid-November. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Russia is continuing its assault on Ukraine's energy and heating infrastructure. And Pierce Nathan Roth has more. Temperatures are already starting to dip across Ukraine, with the first snow falling in parts of the country's northeast. Aid groups and Ukrainian officials are scrambling to prepare people for the colder temperatures, efforts that have taken on new urgency following weeks of Russian attacks. Alyssa Komaria and her young daughter fled from their home in Severodonetsk to here in Dnipro. They are waiting in line for wool blankets provided by the International Rescue Committee. Komaria says she's worried about the months to come. They say it's going to be a cold winter, she says, and we know there are going to be problems with electrical systems because of Russian attacks. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. Wall Street higher by the close, the Dow up 748, the Nasdaq up 244. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The chance to cast your ballot early in person for the November election starts across Massachusetts tomorrow. All cities and towns will have polling places open over the next two weeks, although hours will vary. WBUR's Steve Brown reports voting by mail is off to a slow start. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says of the more than one million mail-in ballots that have been sent out to voters so far, only 157,000 have been returned. Galvin hopes as Election Day gets closer, more voters will become interested. The lateness of the election, November 8th, I think has been a factor in the slowness of building momentum. Obviously, the absence of marquee races for the Congress as well has contributed, I think, to the lack of focus here in Massachusetts contrasted with, for instance, New Hampshire and even Rhode Island. Galvin says it's too early to make a prediction on turnout. He thinks the four ballot questions are the big draw for voters. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Woburn police say allegations are credible that a former officer helped plan and attend a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, five years ago. An internal investigation determines that John Donnelly took part in the rally that resulted in the death of a counter-protester. The city says Donnelly violated department policies by being involved in white supremacist groups. He resigned from the force earlier this week. More disruptions with service on the Green Line this weekend. Starting tomorrow, the MBTA will be busing passengers along the D branch between Kenmore and Riverside. This is the third and final planned shutdown of the fall. It'll run until October 30th. It allows workers to repair track and make other infrastructure upgrades. In the forecast, look for... 
calm skies tonight, clear skies throughout the night, cooling to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine again, a little bit warmer, rising to about 68. Sunday, lots of clouds moving in, maybe some afternoon rain falling to about 62. We could see some clouds for the first few days of next week as well. 60 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. WBUR supporters include Indeed. Designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. In the last two and a half years, we've often been reminded that what happens halfway around the world can affect the prices you pay at home. A factory in China can shut down due to COVID cases, so it makes fewer products and they become more expensive. A war in Ukraine can disrupt the international markets for food and oil, enough that some people will skimp and others may starve. These days, international economists are seeing storm clouds over much of the planet. Inflation is high, growth is stalling. And what governments are doing to provide relief to their citizens may come with their own painful side effects. We're going to talk through that this afternoon with NPR correspondents on three continents. Rob Schmitz in Germany, Lauren Freyer in India, and Scott Horsley here in the U.S. Hi to all three of you. Hello. Hi there. Scott, let's start with these gloomy economic forecasts. What are they saying? You know, policymakers from throughout the world were here in Washington not long ago, and it was a really sobering session. Uh, The International Monetary Fund says it's seeing a slowdown in all the major economic engines of the global economy, the U.S., China, and Europe. And while inflation may have come down a little bit in some parts of the globe, it's still way too high. Uh, IMF economist Pierre-Olivier Gorinches warns things are likely to get worse in the coming year. And in many parts of the planet, he says it's going to feel like a recession. We're going to have this combination of lower growth and still high inflation. And in many countries, uh, when we looked under the hood, in about a third of the global economy, Uh, we're going to see contractions. The IMF expects the global economy will grow just 2.7% next year. That's about half a point lower than this year's growth. And it's worse than what forecasters were expecting as recently as this summer. Scott, why do they think things are getting worse? Of course, one of the big factors is the war in Ukraine, which continues to disrupt energy and food supplies in many parts of the world. Uh, We also continue to feel the effects of the pandemic with lingering lockdowns in China, for example. Here in the U.S., inflation remains stubbornly high. It's begun to spread from things like used cars and gasoline to rent and medical care, where prices tend to be more sticky. And so far, people are still spending pretty freely, but we are beginning to see some belt tightening. A retiree, Miriam Garcia, who lives in South Florida, says she's gotten more careful about what she buys at the supermarket. And she's even been cutting back on family vacations. We were going to take the grandchildren to Disney World, and we ended up not taking them because it was that expensive. I mean, it's the prices have skyrocketed everywhere. Of course, the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates in an effort to curb inflation, and you can see the effects of that in the housing market. Uh, Builders are not building as many new houses these days, and sales of existing homes have been falling for the last eight months. So far, the U.S. job market has stayed really strong. Unemployment is still very low, but that could change as interest rates continue to climb. 
And all of you know that inflation is not just a U.S. problem. Rob, you're in Germany. That's Europe's largest economy. And the war has caused an energy crisis. How bad has it gotten in Germany and how is Germany dealing with this? Inflation in Germany is at its highest in more than 70 years. And you notice this each time that you head to the grocery store. Groceries in Germany cost around 20% more than they did a year ago. Uh, Germans are also noticing this in their energy bills. Electricity costs are nearly 50% more than a year ago, and those are expected to rise even more this winter. Natural gas for heating is double what it cost a year ago. The list just goes on. We're starting to see social unrest in eastern Germany because of the rising prices. Weekly protests in cities throughout this part of the country. Germany's government has pledged at least $200 billion to help people pay their energy bills as part of an energy price cap package. Of course, the underlying reason for these rising costs is Russia's war in Ukraine and Germany's decision during the era of Angela Merkel to rely on Russia for half of all of its natural gas. Germany's economy minister says Russia's war in Ukraine will push the country into recession next year. And we're seeing the same situation throughout Europe. And Rob, for some families, rising prices are an aggravation. For others, it's a real financial problem. How concerned are families and businesses you've been talking with about these rising prices? Yeah, I've been able to travel around Germany and I've been on the road the past two months talking to families and businesses about this. And they're all feeling the pinch and are very worried about their futures. I think the one person I spoke to who really hit home what's at stake for Germany was Heiko Menerich. He's the head of energy at Ivonik, a company that runs a chemical park that employs more than 10,000 people outside of Dortmund. Here's what he said about rising energy prices. If you compare the energy price level in Europe with the energy price level in the US. We are suffering under the competition. So I fear really what happens to the European industry if we have this high energy price level for a longer period of time. And Sasha, what he means here is that German companies are paying at least three times more for electricity than U.S. companies pay. And for a company like Ivonik, whose main competitors are American, this means they will no longer be able to compete on price. And so many companies that employ millions of Germans are not only going to lose market share, but some will just simply go out of business and be forced to lay workers off. Economists warn that Europe's largest economy could see a wave of insolvency starting this winter. The sad reality is that anytime the cost of food and fuel goes up, it's the poor who are hardest hit. Lauren, I would love to get your perspective on this. You're based in Mumbai for NPR. You cover South Asia. What effects are you seeing there of rising food and fuel prices? Yeah, so I just want to preface this by saying we're talking about something serious and we're talking about poverty and economic um, pain. But I don't know if you can hear behind me, it's Diwali, the Festival of Lights here, huge holiday. And, you know, despite the economic pain, Indians are still partying. So there's a massive Diwali party going on across the street here. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, a couple days ago, the Global Hunger Index came out. It's an annual survey that showed that India had dropped six spots to 107 out of 121 countries. That's a rank of starvation, of child mortality, and of undernourishment. And I met a rickshaw driver who's an example of that undernourishment. His name is Ibrahim Naikodi. He's 43, father of three, and the cost of filling up his rickshaw's gas tank is 10% higher just in the past month. He's raised his fares, passed on the, those costs to his clients, but he's barely breaking even. Here's what he had to say. Ah, come, come. He's speaking in Hindi there, and he's saying, 
basically he's having to buy less food for his family. He can't afford health care. He's struggling to pay his kids' school fees. Um, he said his wife has never worked outside the home and is now thinking of going to get a job. And India has 1.4 billion people, and many of them, like Ibrahim, are buying less, eating less, producing less. And that just reverberates through the country's GDP. During COVID lockdown, Indian GDP dropped more than 20 percent. The government does not want a repeat of that. And so it's taking drastic measures. Um, it's restricted exports of wheat and rice to try to stabilize domestic prices. Um, India is one of the largest grain growers in the world. It's a country that the world economy was looking to to make up a shortfall from Ukrainian grain. And instead, India's restricted exports, and that's hurt some of its neighbors, some even poorer countries, which buy grain from India. And we're talking about like one in four human beings lives in South Asia. So this is a huge chunk of the global population that's at risk here. One in four, a quarter of the world yeah. lives in South Asia. Yeah, that's amazing. amazing. And it's some of the world's poorest people. But the region is also home to emerging markets that have seen real growth in recent decades. Lauren, is that progress in jeopardy now? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, because growth actually is not as slow here as it is elsewhere. Um, Scott mentioned the IMF's forecast. For 2023, the forecast for emerging and developing economies in Asia is nearly 5%. That's not bad when you consider it's about 1% for the U.S. and half that for the Eurozone. But it's really lopsided when you have inflation and consumer prices up as much as 73%, which is the case in places like Sri Lanka. I want to talk about Bangladesh, because Bangladesh's power plants, mostly run on imported fuel, which is now being rationed. So the country's seeing rolling blackouts. You know, Europe is lowering its thermostats this winter. But in Bangladesh, the entire power grid went down earlier this month. All the lights went off in the almost the entire country at the same time. And so that really hurts productivity, especially in the country's garment factories, which have been a real engine of economic development. They've helped pull millions of people out of poverty, especially first-time female workers. And now there's a risk of that progress backsliding. You know, to deal with inflation, we're seeing central banks around the world raising interest rates like the Fed has done. But that comes with the risk of slowing down an economy too much, perhaps leading to recession. Scott Horsley, how big a threat is that? It's certainly a possibility. You've got policymakers in a bunch of different parts of the world, each trying to deal with their own problems. But their actions don't necessarily stop at their own borders. And if they're not careful, they can have unintended ripple effects. Uh, for example, rising interest rates in the U.S. have increased the value of the dollar relative to other currencies. That's a plus for American consumers, but it's a real challenge for people in other countries who see their prices go up more. Uh, rising interest rates also make it more expensive for governments that have to borrow money. Uh, the Fed says it's mindful of those international spillover effects, but it's determined to bring down inflation. And the IMF has basically endorsed that approach, uh, even as Gorinchus warns of possible fallout around the globe from central banks cracking down too hard on inflation. He says that's outweighed by the danger of not cracking down hard enough. If they fail to bring down uh, inflation, eventually that's going to be a bigger cost to the economy because either inflation would become entrenched and that would be a disaster, or they will have to do more later in order to bring down inflation, and they will have to face more severe headwinds doing that. So the overall cost to the economy will also be larger. In other words, forecasters are saying better to weather these economic storm clouds now in hopes of winning a sunny, stable price environment down the road. But they acknowledge it could be messy in the meantime. Very messy, very complicated. 
That's NPR's Scott Horsley in Washington, Lauren Freyer in Mumbai, India, and Rob Schmitz in Berlin, Germany. Thank you, all three of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Happy Diwali. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up, Tanya Tucker and Brandy Carlisle on the big screen. Their new documentary next here at 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Bull Run Restaurant in Shirley. Farm-to-table dining and live music. Now booking holiday parties. More info at bullrunrestaurant.com. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. Wall Street had its best week since June. The Dow rose today 2.5 percent, 749 points. It closed at 31,083. S&P gained 2 and 4 tenths percent. It finished at 37.53. NASDAQ closed at 2 and 3 tenths of a percent higher to end the day at 10,860. A report out today shows the Massachusetts unemployment rate for September dipped slightly over the previous month. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports the state's jobless rate was 3.4 percent. Massachusetts added almost 14,000 jobs in September. The largest gains were in leisure and hospitality, education and health services, and construction. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. And Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, with programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of historic Beacon Hill. Now open at 71 Charles Street. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Celtics are down in Miami tonight to play the Heat, 7.30 game time. Bruins play tomorrow afternoon at the Boston Garden. We're headed for a nice night tonight. Clear skies, lows about 46. If you're going to row in the head of the Charles Regatta this weekend, tomorrow's looking pretty good. Sunday, not so much. Tomorrow, full sunshine, a light breeze around 68 for a high. And for Sunday, falling to 62, mostly cloudy skies with a chance of rain in the afternoon. More clouds ahead for Monday. This is WBUR in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. All right, pull up a chair, get comfortable, because you're going to want to settle in and listen to these next two guests. I'm Tanya Denise Tucker. Uh, And what else would you want to know? You're a country music singer. I'm a singer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, meet the woman you just heard helping her out there. I'm Brandy Carlisle. I'm also a singer, songwriter, producer, and a good friend of the great Tanya Mother Tucker. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's, now, that's an honor right there. 
Tanya Tucker and Brandi Carlisle have 32 Grammy nominations, eight Grammy wins between them, but they'd never met until they decided to make a record together, and then a movie about making that record. The result is The Return of Tanya Tucker. They dropped by our New York studios this week to talk about it, including the moment in 2019 that Brandi first reached Tanya on the phone. It was the day I woke up and I was nominated for all those Grammys for the first time in my life. That was the day I met you. Brandi Carlisle might have just been nominated for six Grammys, but Tanya Tucker had never heard of her. I really didn't know. I never knew her music, so I'm an idiot. But my kids knew who she was. Mom, oh, my God, Brandi Carlisle? But anyway, so the phone rings. So I answered, and and, uh, and uh, she just she just went to talking, and uh, I was sold. I was like, Miss Tucker, I have got a plan. Yeah, I was sold by the time I got done talking. Uh, I'm not sure if I was sold. No, I was sold. She was kind of blown away, you know, yeah. and we had been trying to talk her into coming out. She wasn't sure how serious we were. You know, her kids knew who I was, yeah. but not because I was famous, because I had been calling them. Ah, I had been circling right. the wagons, and I was saying, I really believe this is a moment of reckoning for country music. Here's the background to why a new Tanya Tucker album seemed like a moment of reckoning. Tanya dropped her first big hit 50 years ago when she was 13 years old. That's Delta Dawn, her first hit from 1972. By the time she was 15, she was on the cover of Rolling Stone. Brandy Carlisle grew up listening to her. She draws a direct line between what Tanya was doing with her voice in the 1970s and what she, Brandy, does with hers today. I climbed across the mountain tops, swam all across the ocean across I don't like compartmentalizing genre in terms of gender. But if you think about this, there, there's been a whole lane in sort of female-fronted country music that's like got this kind of like, like the chicks are like this, kind of, kind of sassy, kind of rebellious with a wide gate. They stand there, they hold their ground. You've got Miranda Lambert doing this. You've got several generations of women influenced by like a toughness that comes from like a rural sensibility that's different than your typical Southern belle. It's not feminine. It's something else. And... I just think that Tanya is the architect of that um, in the same way that uh, Johnny Cash was the architect of the concept of his lament and the man in black and, and his stoicism and steadiness and music was indelible. And Tanya's is indelible, too. We just so happen to be lucky enough that she's young. She was young when she started. She's young now. We have her here. Let's stop screwing around. No. Let's make sure we get out and see her play because she's she built us. Well, that's awfully nice of her to say so. But it was, I mean, unintentional. I was just trying to, you know, to, trying to get by and survive and, and do the only thing I knew how to do. Well, you were so young, you Sometimes know, when I you started. About that. And unfortunately, this is what we were talking about. It also means that all your peers, all your friends are so much older than you that yeah. you're having to say goodbye that's what I was leading up to, and that's what our next single is about. Yeah. Oh, give me a preview. Um, um, It's called Ready As I'll I'm Never Be. I'm singing it all the way over here. Now I'm like, uh,
Tanya writes songs in like one-liners. And it's and they're amazing when she'll drop this line on you and it'll just blow your mind. And we had just lost John Prine to COVID and then yes. Billy Joe Shaver passed yes. away. Yes, Billy Joe Shaver, that was tough. Yeah. And my heroes, you know. Yeah. And people that were my friends went from being my heroes to being my friends and back to being heroes again. So, so I go up to have dinner with her in Nashville the night mm -hmm. Billy Joe Shaver died. And, yes. and we were walking up the stairs and I said, they don't want to bring it up, but I said, Tan Tanya, I'm, I'm sorry about Billy Joe. I know how much he loved him. And she goes... She's out, oh, honey. She goes, that's the thing about, you know, the, they're all going to get their wings before I do, yeah. you know, God willing. And then she looks at me with that Tanya look, and she goes, ready as I'll never be. <laughs> I guess I'm ready. Ready as I'll never be. Oh, my, what an amazing sentiment. How true is that? That because she's so much younger, that these icons are going to always go sooner, you know, and... It's God's going to keep you here. But That's the, the difference, difference between her and what I've had before it, is that, you know, an idea is just an idea until you put it into action. She takes it and she goes with it and she, she, don't, she don't stop. So this brings me, I want to spend a little time on the song that's at the heart of the film and yes. of y'all's collaboration, Bring My Flowers Now. That starts something like this? Tell us how exactly. it started. The same way. Same thing. I had the chorus for a long time. Yeah. Long, long, long time. Uh, and I was leaving Nashville, going to Austin for Christmas. But on the way, I always call Loretta. When I go, cause I go right by where the turnoff is to her, her ranch. Loretta Lynn. Yeah. We talked, and I sang her that chorus for some reason. I don't know why I do things. But, and then I guess I sang it to you. Yeah, and you sang her that chorus, and she wanted to write it. And I, as soon as I heard you say it, you know, uh, bring my flowers yeah. now while I'm living, because I don't want to need your love when I'm gone. Don't spend time, tears, or money on my old breathless body. On my old breathless body. If your heart is in them flowers, bring them home. Bring My Flowers Now won Best Country Song of the Year at the 2020 Grammys. It is Tanya's voice, Tanya's story. Brandy shared the Grammy with her as co-songwriter. I wrote it down for you so you could be your own, your own voice, but I know those are your feelings. So you wrote that song, you know, even if I held the pen. Well, you know, we all do things differently, but she gets me, and, um, and I'm, I'm so thankful for her uh, because... Uh, she's the only one that's really gotten me and has done something about it, you know? And uh, uh, we're talking about what she, you talking about what she gets out of it. She ain't getting no money. I guarantee you, she's putting her in a hole. And I said, why not, Brandy? She goes, because I want people to know I'm serious. Yeah, it's true. Brandy Carlisle and Tanya Tucker. Our conversation continues Monday when we hear about that time Tanya came to stay with Brandy. She makes the best Wables Rancheros I've ever had. Oh, yeah, I made that for you. That, that was, was with awesome. the shrimp and stuff like that. I don't know what. It was just awesome. I'd wake up in the morning. She'd be standing there in her boxers cooking yeah. bacon with a fork. Yeah, those little muffins you made. Those <laughs> are so great. I got my knee on the wheel and I'm feeling free with my hobnail on the gas. Just crossed over the county line, try 
Trying to make it up to Wild Rose. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Another beautiful fall day is coming to an end. Should be another one straight ahead, though. Forecasting clear tonight, chilly again in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunny and milder, making it to the high 60s. Sunday, no sunshine, looks like. We should have gray skies, showers possible in the afternoon, 62 at the highest. The Boston Philharmonic Orchestra opened its season this week at Symphony Hall, and tomorrow, for the first time in your three years, you can hear Maestro Benjamin Zander, the founder of the Philharmonic, talk about Beethoven and Schubert and guide performers live in one of his popular interpretations of music classes. It's free at the Boston Public Library tomorrow at 10 a.m. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. Danny Shapiro's novel, Signal Fires, is about all the characters we are in a single lifetime, and maybe beyond. We always carry our past with us. We always carry all the selves we've ever been, like a series of Russian dolls. They're always inside of us. A talk with the author and all the latest news is American Near's midterm election, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Threats from Russia's war in Ukraine have not only been physical, but also digital. That's why the Ukrainian government is stepping up its effort to protect critical infrastructure from cyber attacks. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin has more. The State Special Communications Service of Ukraine, created in 2006, has been one of the most important security agencies following Russia's invasion in February. Tasked with protecting state data networks and securing government communications, the agency has taken on new roles in wartime. That includes publishing sensitive details about Russian cyber attacks for the world to learn from and protect against, as well as regularly communicating with international journalists. A new law will authorize the SSSCIP to protect Ukraine's critical infrastructure as well, requiring them to create a list of critical services in the country and find additional ways to secure them. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. President Biden says nearly 22 million people have applied for student loan debt relief since the administration launched its website one week ago. About 40 million people are eligible. Biden speaking today to students at Delaware State University, a historically black college where more than 75 percent of students receive Pell Grants. I don't want to hear it from MAGA Republicans, officials who had hundreds of thousands of dollars of debts, even millions of dollars in pandemic relief loans forgiven, who now are attacking, attacking me for helping working class and middle class Americans. The student loan debt relief program cancels up to $10,000 in debt for those earning less than $125,000 a year and up to $20,000 for those who received Pell Grants. This was Biden's second visit in a week to a historically black college, or HBCU, as Democrats work to energize young voters ahead of next month's midterm elections. Stocks finished higher to end the week on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The federal government is in the process of distributing $37 million to help low-income households pay the skyrocketing cost of heating oil. Well, the head of Action for Boston Community Development, Sharon Scott Chandler, says even more money is needed to get people through the winter. There is still the conversation happening at the state level, both in 
either a supplemental or economic development bill. We're hoping to up it to 50 million statewide, but right now the initial requests that we had were was 20 million. Scott Chandler says the maximum benefit for the lowest income households is $1,600. A case of Legionnaire's disease at Senior Living Facility in Auburn is under investigation. The owner of the Brookdale Eddie Pond facility says the source of the contamination hasn't been found. Legionnaire's is a type of pneumonia spread through water droplets. The facility is working with a water treatment company to help stop the spread of the bacteria. The mayor of which city has this word of advice for anybody who wants to celebrate Halloween in their community? If you're coming to Salem, do it by train, ferry, or broom, but not by car. Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll says the streets of Salem are jammed and parking is scarce and expensive during October's Haunted Happening celebration. Driscoll says so far this month, Salem has had more than a half million visitors downtown. That's up 15 percent from last year. The MBTA has added additional trains for the last weekends of October. The Salem Ferry from Boston's Long Wharf is also an option. Old Ironsides is celebrating its 225th birthday. Former crew members of the USS Constitution today joined the warship's current squad in a sail out to Castle Island. The warship first launched on this day in Boston Harbor back in 1797. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Should be nice weather for the opening or second day that is at the head of the Charles Regatta tomorrow. First, the forecast for tonight, clear skies, temperatures in the mid-40s. Then for tomorrow, lots of sunshine. Should be a beautiful day, a little bit warmer, rising to about 68 degrees. Sunday, though, cloudy and wet. Just the chance of afternoon showers could come close again to 70 tomorrow. Back towards 60, though, on Sunday. Light winds for the entire weekend. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. The House panel investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol sent a subpoena today to former President Donald Trump. The committee voted unanimously earlier this month to subpoena Trump as part of its investigation into how responsible he was for organizing the assault. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh is with us now with details. Hi, Deirdre. Hey there. What does the committee want from Trump? Well, the letter from the panel's chairman, Benny Thompson, and vice chair, Liz Cheney, asks for documents by November 4th. They lay out a long list of things they want, things like memos, communications with political advisors like Roger Stone, outside legal advisors like Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman. He was the author of that memo outlining a plan to block the certification of several states' election results. They also want the former president to appear in person, testify before the panel, they say, on or around November 14th. Thompson and Cheney point out that they've already interviewed over a thousand witnesses and reviewed over a million documents, mostly former Trump administration officials and staff. 
about what they say was a multi-part effort to overturn the 2020 election. Does the House panel see Trump as the force behind the assault? They do, and they've been making this case over and over again over the nine public hearings they've held this year. They present evidence that they mentioned in their letter. The committee's leaders state to Trump, quote, in short, you were at the center of the first and only effort by any U.S. president to overturn an election and obstruct the peaceful transition of power, ultimately culminating in a bloody attack on our own capital and on the Congress itself. You mentioned that the panel wants memos, communications, etc. Which of Trump's messages do they want to see? They're looking for communications between Trump and a list of his allies, people in the administration, in Congress, and in some of the outside groups pushing misinformation about the 2020 election. For example, they're asking for communications between Trump and far-right groups like the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys about plans related to people coming to Washington on January 6th for that rally near the White House and for efforts to disrupt the joint session at the Capitol. They're asking for materials related to Trump's outreach to state election officials to try to delay or change the certification of electoral votes in several states. They also asked for materials related to Vice President Mike Pence. We should say former Trump's efforts to wage all these legal challenges in over 60 courts were were rejected. And the January 6th committee had testimony under oath from several witnesses who worked at the Trump White House that told the committee the former president was told repeatedly he lost, but he still kept pushing this plan to have Congress overturn the results. And Deirdre, what's the precedent? What's the precedent for ex-presidents testifying before Congress? I mean, it is pretty unusual, but committee leaders admit that sending a subpoena to a former president is historic. They do list a number of former presidents, people like John Quincy Adams, Theodore Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and Gerald Ford, who testified after they left office. They also note Abraham Lincoln and Ford testified during their time in office. Deidre, has Trump responded to the subpoena? An attorney for Trump did. David Warrington, who's handling this matter, criticized the panel for, quote, flouting norms and an appropriate and customary process and releasing the subpoena publicly today. But he did add, we're going to review and analyze it and respond as appropriate to what he said was unprecedented action. That's NPR's Deidre Walsh. Thank you very much. Thank you. The incredibly short tenure of outgoing British Prime Minister Liz Truss has raised eyebrows all around the world. And at the heart of this economic fallout in the UK is one thing, tax cuts. You see, the Truss plan to kickstart the economy and fight inflation had involved tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy, which probably sounds familiar if you've heard such calls made by some politicians here in the U.S., Let's talk about all of that now with Simon Johnson, professor at MIT's Sloan School of Management and former chief economist with the International Monetary Fund. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Okay, so first, real briefly, can you just help remind us about the basics of what the trust tax plan would have done and why it caused so much upheaval? Well, uh, Liz Truss and and her then or initial chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, um, campaigned uh, on a promise that was straight out of the Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush playbook and Donald Trump playbook. They would cut uh, personal taxes and uh, corporate taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they argued that that would boost the economy, that that would improve many things. I'm not sure it would have focused particularly on reducing inflation, but they did say it would lead to prosperity for all. So basically a version of what we what sometimes call trickle down economics. OK, but a lot of people did not like this plan. Well, w- one thing that was immediately evident was that this would increase the British budget deficit 
for the foreseeable future. So the bond market looked at that and said, wow, that's going to be a lot of borrowing. Of course, they're having an inflation problem like everyone else's. And interest rates in reaction to the fiscal package uh, rose dramatically. And that also caused problems for financial markets, big problems actually for uh, UK pension funds. Then came the the economic and political pressure for uh, Liz Trust to, to back down. Exactly. Okay. Well, now I want to explore some parallels perhaps between the UK and US here because I want to read a tweet from an editor for the legal blog Above the Law. Quote, Liz Truss implemented the GOP's whole economic plan and collapsed her economy within a month. End quote. We're talking about completely different governments, completely different economies here, I suppose. But what parallels between the U.S. and U.K. tax policy proposals are worth highlighting here? Certainly the tax cutting rhetoric and the main thrust of what they were attempting to cut and how they were attempting to cut it, that is straight out of the Republican Party playbook. Um, And Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, Donald Trump have all run versions of that. And I think Truss and and, and her chancellor, Koteng, thought that they would have a similar sort of positive reception um, among financial investors, and maybe it wouldn't be the most popular for ordinary voters, but they wouldn't be punished at the polls for it. So I think the parallel is actually pretty close. Different times, of course, different circumstances, different currency, but there's a lot of parallels. So what ultimately do you think is the takeaway for leaders and economists here in the U.S. from everything that has happened in the U.K., especially as they're all thinking about how inflation is impacting the economy here? What's the cautionary tale? The bond market vigilantes are back. It's a term, it's a strange term, which we've not used in maybe maybe 30 years in the United States. The bond market vigilantes have never, in, in, in any of these um, high income countries in the, in, the, in the modern period, they've never really turned against tax cuts in, in the way they turned against it in this moment in Britain over the past uh, six weeks. But I think the, the warning to ministries of finance, to central banks and to politicians everywhere is, the rhetoric of tax cuts and and this idea will cut the taxes and we'll get more revenue and it'll all trickle down to everybody. I mean, that hasn't been plausible for a long time. And and now the bond markets have done the math. And I think there's going to be a lot less space for those sorts of proposals to succeed anyway. Maybe we tried, but the circumstances could be pretty brutal. That is Simon Johnson, MIT professor and former chief economist at the IMF. Thank you very much. Thank you. Considered from NPR News. Gun control advocates are hoping a new tool will help identify suspicious gun sales. It involves a piece of financial plumbing, let's call it, used by credit card companies and banks. But will the financial industry embrace it? Waylon Wong and Darian Woods from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain. Now, credit card companies and banks don't collect product-level data on what specific items people are buying with their cards. But the one thing that is communicated back to all of those folks is the merchant category code. 
Andrew Ross Sorkin is a columnist and editor-at-large at The New York Times, where he covers the financial industry. And he knows all about the Merchant Category Code, or MCC for short. It's this four-digit number that's used to categorize a business by what it primarily sells. That could be cat food or concert tickets or refrigerator repair. And one big way the industry uses these codes is to gather data on consumer spending. David Shipper is a strategic advisor at a financial services research firm called IT Navarica Group. I mean, without them, it really would be difficult to understand as a, as a card issuer where your consumers are spending money. Merchant category codes have been around since 2003, and they're managed by a group in Geneva, Switzerland called the International Organization for Standardization. The ISO is the authority that approves or rejects requests for new codes based on criteria like is the proposed new category distinct enough from the categories that already exist? And do the businesses in the category generate at least $10 million in annual sales? Until September, there wasn't a code specifically for stores that sell guns and ammunition. Those businesses are usually designated as sporting goods or miscellaneous. So in 2018, Andrew Ross Sorkin thought, what if there was a new code just for gun stores so the financial industry could have a chance at potentially spotting suspicious activity? So he started writing and giving talks about this idea, and one bank took notice, Amalgamated Bank. It submitted an application to the ISO for a new merchant category code. And after an initial rejection, the ISO approved the request, and David said that caused quite a stir. The new code was considered a win by gun control advocates, but a firearms trade association and almost two dozen Republican attorneys general are bulking at the idea. David says that it's not clear how effective the new merchant category code will actually be as a way to spot suspicious purchases. For starters, the code is like a blunt instrument. It only identifies the type of business where a credit card is used. It doesn't give any information about what was purchased. And then there's the question of whether the new merchant category code will get used at all. So remember, we mentioned earlier that banks assign the codes to the businesses, and gun stores are usually designated as sporting goods or miscellaneous. So for this new code to actually get used, stores and their banks would have to work together to reclassify the store. David says he doesn't really see that happening, and he's also skeptical that newly opened gun stores will want this code assigned to them. So at the moment, the new merchant category code exists, but it needs financial institutions to embrace it. But Andrew says he hopes the new code will inspire continued debate and reflection in the financial industry about how those businesses can help reduce gun violence. Darian Woods, Waylon Wong, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, Sweet Land of Liberty, a history of America in 11 pies. First, a couple of transportation notes. There will be more service disruptions on the Green Line this weekend. Starting tomorrow, the MBTA will bus passengers along the D branch between Kenmore and Riverside. This is the third and final planned shutdown of the fall to allow workers to make repairs and upgrades. And a reminder, the Sumner Tunnel closes tonight at 11 for more construction work through the weekend. Drivers will be detoured through the area. The Sumner will reopen Monday morning at 5 o'clock. It's 548.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum, in person on October 24th. Hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org. Tonight, the Salts are on the road in Florida. They meet the heat at 7.30. New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick is not saying who's going to be his quarterback Monday night against the Bears. Mac Jones is recovering from an injury he sustained in the third game of the season. Bailey Zappi has started in the last two games. At his press conference today, Belichick did say that Mac Jones' condition is improving. This is 90.9 WBUR, 59 degrees now in the Boston area. WBUR supporters include the Wheeler School, where learning is an adventure, from lower school neuroscience to upper school arts. Open house tomorrow for K-12. WheelerSchool.org. Particularly for someone who ran primarily, almost exclusively, on this free market economic message, it really felt like Liz Truss all of a sudden didn't have much of a reason to be prime minister anymore. And as that realization dawns on people, it almost quickly becomes a political death watch. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. You've almost certainly heard the expression, as American as apple pie. But why is apple pie considered so American? And is the explanation really so simple? Apple pie is not American because it is wholesome and hearty, and certainly not because it is indigenous. It's American because it embodies the way cultures and traditions from all over the world have blended, reshaped, and ingrained themselves into the fabric of this country, to define the reality of our national narrative. That's food writer Rossi Anastopoulou. As you can tell, she considers the apple pie America connection complicated. She uses pies to explore our country's evolution, including religion and gender roles and an economy built on slave labor, in her new book, Sweet Land of Liberty, A History of America and 11 Pies. Rossi Anastopoulou, thanks for being here. It's wonderful to be here, Sasha. This was a really fun and interesting book, also very funny at times. You say up front in your book that pies are not the most obvious lens for looking at American history. So why did you use them to do that? First of all, pie as we know it in the United States is very distinct to our country. There are versions of pie in many different countries and cuisines and cultures, but what we think of as pie here in the States is completely distinct to to our food culture. Another big element is that pie is really incredibly versatile and malleable. There are so many shapes and forms that can take. It really is just a filling and a crust. And so what that filling is and what that crust is can change depending on so many different factors, like the people who are making it, the people who are eating it or not eating it, um, the ingredients that are available or not available. And so because of that, the different shapes that it can take, I find to be incredibly revealing for a lot of elements of our history and our national story. You give many examples of how pies of different eras tell us something about how we view race and class and gender. Some I expected, like what pumpkin pie symbolizes when it comes to indigenous people and how molasses pie has roots in sugar plantations that relied on slavery. But others surprise me, like jello pies in the 1950s. Tell us the connection you see between jello pies and the role of women at that time. 
Oh, absolutely. The advertisements and messaging around Jell-O and recipes for Jell-O pie were pretty explicit about what they expected women to be and to do in a certain aspect of American society. So, you know, there's the element of perfection and reliability and always having this beautiful centerpiece that a woman could be judged by when it comes to her homemaking abilities. And so these expectations were used as part of a brand to sell these products and help women achieve this in many ways, unattainable ideal for what an American housewife was supposed to be. And that was through Jell-O and through Jell-O pies. You also wrote about how it was this convenience product. You could just tear open a little packet, pour it into a crust, you have a pie. So it reflected women trying to balance a lot of things at the time, sometimes parenting and also working out of the house as well. Exactly. It was convenience, but still an element of cooking and an element of baking that existed in the creation of pie. There's a reason that it's not just jello, it's a jello pie. You're putting some sense of active labor into it to be able to, in some ways, show what you're willing to give and to still be an active participant in the kitchen. I learned from your book about bean pies sold in the street by members of the Nation of Islam and how they were touted as a healthier alternative to what was considered an unhealthy quote, slave diet, as you termed it. Tell us about bean pies. Oh, absolutely. So that concept of the slave diet comes from Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam. And he was really the person who set these very strict and then sometimes idiosyncratic tenets for diet. And part of that was a real promotion of the navy bean. And at the same time, a real opposition to sweet potatoes because of that connection to a diet of enslaved people. And so as part of that, the navy bean pie, which um, was a big favorite of Muhammad Ali, really became a central dessert for many members of the Nation of Islam and became this symbol for a new Black diet in America and this new Black culture meant to be created separate from a dominating white culture. And so this pie becomes a real symbol of empowerment for for many members of that community. Mock apple pies. You write about these two. I've never had one. They, as you write, reflect creativity and ingenuity during economic crises like Civil War and and World War II. These don't even contain fruit. Is that right? That's correct. They are completely absent of any fruit. They're really just mostly crackers. So talk a bit more about what that tells us about that era in which pies like that were being made. Yes. I mean, we first see mock apple pie really crop up around the Civil War and even a little bit before that, when people were going west. In many cases, you know, there's an anecdote in the book about one party who, a member of their party made mock apple pie and they had no access to apples nearby. And so she made it with these crackers and it really replicated mom's apple pie. And so in many ways, it wasn't just something to fill their stomachs, but really to capture this nostalgia and comfort and maybe alleviate some homesickness in addition to physical hunger. And so I think that thread continues through the Civil War when this became something that was baked in the South and on through to the Great Depression and other periods when, you know, ingredients aren't always easily accessible. And so I think that mock apple pie really represents the spiritual and emotional connection that pie has in addition to the physical one. Quiche is not something I think of as a pie. But you point out it's basically an egg pie, and it got tied up in gender issues because of that book, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. I think that was, what, the 1980s? Yes, the early 80s. How did that book end up harming the reputation of quiche? 
that book is so fascinating because it was really meant as a satire. It points out so many, you know, sort of stereotypical things that men do not do. Real men do not eat quiche amongst many other kind of farcical de declarations. But in many cases, that type of language became embedded in American culture. And, you know, there's a, an anecdote about, you know, people holding up a sign at a Yankees game that said, Reggie Jackson eats quiche. <laughs> Um, and some, some funny insults that sprung up around whether or not someone ate a quiche. Your book made me realize I've never tried a tomato pie, although maybe that's just another term for pizza. Oh, no, it's very different. So I'm from the South, and tomato pie is very much a thing there. Um, and I highly recommend it. My aunt makes a delicious one, but it's more um, similar to a quiche, like a savory type of pie, but it'll often have a sort of like mayonnaise-based filling. It's very creamy with tomatoes. It's in a pie plate, and it is very tasty. I highly recommend it. I will try it. Rossi, you have an apple pie recipe in the book named after your dad. And I understand that your dad liked pie but didn't like cake. So is this pie very um, symbolic of your father somehow? I would call that my pie origin story. For as long as I can remember, I've been baking him an apple pie for his birthday in October. You know, for me, apple pie represents my dad, and that particular recipe is one that is so closely tied to um, to him and to my family and to how we celebrate that it um, was really special to be able to include it. And I think, you know, kind of represents how so many of us, I think, have our pie stories and our personal connections to pie in this country. That's Rossi Anastopoulo. Her new book is Sweet Land of Liberty, A History of America and 11 Pies. Thank you very much. This was really fun. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Another beautiful fall day is coming to an end. The forecast for tonight, staying clear, chilly again in the mid-40s. For tomorrow, sunshine yet again. Milder could reach the high 60s. And then for Sunday, overcast skies moving in. Showers possible in the afternoon, 62 degrees at the highest. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol today subpoenaed former President Donald Trump. 
A letter from the committee's leaders sent to Trump cited what they called his central role in a deliberate effort to reverse his loss in the 2020 election. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Latino voters are sought after swing voters, and Democrats and Republicans are spending a lot to win them over. In states such as Texas, Latino voters could change the outcome of the midterms. U.N. Security Council has imposed sanctions against Haiti's powerful gang members, including one who goes by the nickname Barbecue. Also, ballot question two facing Massachusetts voters. At issue is dental insurance. We'll hear its backstory and what a yes vote would do. Wall Street had its best week since June. The numbers are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The House Select Committee investigating last year's insurrection at the U.S. Capitol is formally requesting former President Donald Trump's cooperation. The panel issued a subpoena today for Trump's testimony under oath as well as for records. NPR's Dustin Jones has more. The move comes weeks after the committee unanimously voted to hold Trump accountable for inciting the mob. The panel's chair, Democrat Benny Thompson of Mississippi, and vice chair, Republican Liz Cheney from Wyoming, wrote a letter to Trump, ordering he appear before the committee. The letter accuses the former president of personally orchestrating and overseeing an effort to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Trump called the committee, quote, a total bust after it voted to subpoena him last week. The former president has until November 4th to produce the documents, and the subpoena requires him to appear for testimony sometime around November 14th. Dustin Jones, NPR News. Meanwhile, longtime Trump advisor Steve Bannon has been sentenced to four months in prison for contempt of Congress, that for defying a subpoena from the House January 6th committee. The 68-year-old was found guilty of two counts of contempt. Bannon is free pending appeal. Today was my judgment day by the judge, and he stated for the appeal. We'll have a very vigorous appeals process. I've got a great legal team, and there'll be multiple areas of appeal. He was also fined $6,500. President Biden says his plan to forgive billions of dollars in student loan debts is a success, and he says it's a game changer. Our student loan plan lowers costs for Americans as they recover from the pandemic, to give everybody a little more breathing room. I want to be clear who's going to benefit most. Working people, middle-class folks. Speaking there at Delaware State University, Biden's plan will forgive up to $20,000 in student loan debt under certain conditions for millions of borrowers. Next year, you'll be allowed to contribute more to your retirement plan. NPR's David Gura has more. If you have a 401k or a 403b, in 2023, the new contribution limit will be $22,500. That's $2,500 more than this year, a jump of almost 10 percent. And you're also allowed to put more money in IRAs. The reason the Internal Revenue Service is making the change is high inflation. The latest government data showed prices on goods and services rose from August to September by 0.4 percent, more than expected. The federal government also increased the contribution limit for adults 50 and older, who are allowed to contribute more because they're closer to retirement. That maximum is now $30,000. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Wall Street higher by the closing bell, the Dow up 748 points. You're listening to NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Warburn Police internal investigation has determined that allegations are credible against a former officer connected to the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. It found John Donnelly helped plan and then attended a 2017 rally that resulted in the death of a counter-protester. Woburn police and the mayor say Donnelly violated multiple department policies by being involved with extremist groups. Officials say Donnelly refused to cooperate in the investigation. He resigned from the department earlier this week. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu announced today new green standards for building sidewalk curbs at intersections. WBR's Paula Mora reports the idea is to reduce stormwater flooding and increase green space. Curb extensions are where the sidewalk is widened and expanded into the street at intersections so cars can see pedestrians more easily. Mayor Michelle Wu said the city will require new construction to incorporate green infrastructure designs when building curb extensions. So whether that's a green space, like a rain garden or a tree pit, we are committed to not only making our streets safer, but greener and more resilient. The new design requirements have two main ideas. One is to use green materials such as porous and permeable pavement. Another aspect is to offer environmental benefits, such as including trees or rain gardens, that can help mitigate urban heat island effect. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. A California man will plead guilty for making threatening phone calls to Tufts University. 49-year-old Sammy Sultan is charged with calling Tufts University police last year, claiming to be inside school buildings with weapons. The U.S. attorney for Massachusetts says Sultan could face up to five years in prison. He pleaded guilty to making harassing phone calls in California in 2017. In the forecast, clear skies through the night tonight, cooling to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunny again, a little bit warmer, rising to about 68 tomorrow. Then for Sunday, a crush of clouds, maybe some afternoon rain, falling to about 62. We could see clouds for the first few days of next week. This is WBUR at 6.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington, D.C. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. First came this unanimous vote among members of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. And today came the next and extraordinary step. The committee has formally issued a subpoena compelling former President Donald J. Trump to testify and turn over documents. Now, expectations that the former president will actually comply anytime soon have been low to non-existent. And we're going to talk about the stakes and possibilities here with attorney Nick Ackerman, a former federal prosecutor who also helped prosecute the Watergate case. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Nice to have you. Okay, so let me first ask you this. What avenues does former President Trump have to respond to the subpoena if Trump wanted to legally avoid testifying or legally avoid turning over any of these documents? What could he do here? Well, I think the one thing he could do if he just wanted to do it legally without incurring any kind of liability was simply the um, letter that's sent to him says to him that if he intends to assert his Fifth Amendment privilege, Mm -hmm. meaning that if he were to answer questions truthfully, it would tend to incriminate him, that he should so notify the committee. Uh, And it would seem to me upon that notification, 
um, he would probably be excused for attending personally. That would be the proper way to do it if he's trying to get away from having to testify at all. What about if he's trying to get away from turning over any more documents? Well, even the documents, I think he would still take the Fifth Amendment on. Okay. And he could do that. Um, unless, of course, you know, these are government documents. Now, it could very well be that many of the documents that are called for here uh, might be in those documents that were seized by um, the FBI in that raid on Mar-a-Lago. We don't know, um, but one has to wonder. Right. Now, what would be the consequences if Trump doesn't comply with the subpoena whatsoever and doesn't invoke the fifth, as you just explained? Isn't it a crime to defy a congressional subpoena? Oh, it is. Look what happened to Steve Bannon today. I mean, mm -hmm. he's going to serve time in jail as a result. Um, but the other consequences are he can be held in contempt. Um, there's two avenues there. One is to go through the court system which is not really a viable option now. Uh, if it turns out that the Republicans take the House in the upcoming midterm elections, uh, the committee will be disbanded and any effort in court to try and enforce that subpoena will also um, kind of disappear at that point. Right. Uh, the one option that they do have is that the House itself, Congress, has the inherent power um, to basically uh, enforce a contempt. And it's been held by the Supreme Court. It's been upheld. Uh, it was last done, I think, in the Teapot Dome scandal. Um, and they could send the sergeant of arms um, to Trump, um, arrest him, bring him into the uh, committee room, sit him down on the chair. And at that point, uh, the committee could start questioning him. Okay. Well, for a moment, let's inhabit this world where Trump actually does testify and actually does turn over more documents. Can you lay out explicitly what does he risk there? Well, first of all, anything he says will be used against him. Uh, he's going to be creating a transcript and statement under oath. Uh, and if he lies, he can be charged for perjury. So if I were his defense lawyer, I would strongly urge him not to testify because what he's going to wind up doing uh, is getting himself in more trouble than he is now. I mean, this is what happened to most of the major defendants in the Watergate scandal. Uh, they wound up going into the Senate Select Committee that was investigating the Watergate break-in, and they lied. And then they were indicted for obstructing justice with respect to the investigation itself into the Watergate, but they were also charged uh, with lying before Congress and charged with perjury. Um, so that is the biggest risk he has here yeah. for testifying. Well, can I just ask you, because you mentioned Watergate, I mean, you lived through and helped prosecute one of the most famous presidential scandals in history. And I just wonder, as you're taking in all that's unfolded with the January 6th investigation, how does it compare to Watergate in your mind personally? Well, I, in a lot of ways, this has gone way beyond Watergate. I mean, Watergate although it wasn't narrow. It involved a break-in to the Democratic National Committee. It was very serious. I was basically trying to undermine an election again. Um, and it was being orchestrated by the President of the United States. Um, here with Donald Trump, I mean, if you just compare the January 6th um, insurrection, I mean, the idea that a president would actually try and, you know, keep himself in power um, and stop the, tr the peaceful transfer of power through force and through violence um, 
is, you know, pretty incomparable to anything that happens in Watergate. That is attorney and former Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. As Republicans try to regain control of Congress, they're hoping to improve their numbers among Latino voters in this year's elections, particularly in Texas. But it's not clear if the party's outreach is creating a significant enough edge for Republicans when it comes to the Latino vote. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports. It's a sunny afternoon and members of Libre Initiative Action are knocking on doors in a quiet suburban neighborhood in Mission, Texas, which sits right on the U.S.-Mexico border. They're getting the word out about Monica De La Cruz, a Republican congressional candidate running for a newly competitive congressional seat in South Texas against Democrat Michelle Vallejo. One person they talked to was a man named Fidel Villasenor. Buenos días, sir. Uh, mi nombre es Gerardo Villarreal. Vengo de Libre Action. One of the canvassers, Gerardo Villarreal, asked Villasenor if he's voting for the Republican candidate in the upcoming election. Eh, estamos hablando con los votantes de este año y les estamos preguntando uh, si usted va a votar por Mónica de la Cruz este año. Pia Senor said he doesn't know yet, but George Martinez, an advisor and spokesperson for Libre Initiative Action, steps in and asks if there's an issue he really cares about that could maybe motivate him to vote. De casualidad, si si las elecciones fueran hoy y y no sabe si votar por Mónica, ¿qué qué es la la tema más importante para usted ahorita? Uh, la inflación, la economía, la salud. At the end there, Villasenor says inflation is his big issue. Martinez tells him about the Republican candidate's stance on government spending and inflation and then leaves him with a leaflet. Martinez later says most Latinos he's talked to in this area are most concerned about the economy and rising prices. That's what's hurting families and we're feeling, everyone's feeling it, whether you're going to the grocery store or uh, anything that you consume, it's, prices are high right now. And- Republicans and conservative groups in Texas are hoping the economy is an issue that will boost their numbers among Latino voters. In 2020, Donald Trump did better than expected here. But nationwide, and even here in Texas, Democrats still have an edge with Latino voters. In fact, South Texas has long been a Democratic stronghold. Democrats opened a national field office in the area earlier this year and have been running radio ads in an effort to hold on to their support in South Texas. But research shows Latinos have pretty soft ties to political parties. And one point that really illustrates this is the fact that roughly one in 10 Latino voters who identified as either a Democrat or a Republican held political views that more closely aligned with the opposing party. Jens Manuel Krogstad with the Pew Research Center says this is why Latino voters are more like swing voters compared to the rest of the country, which is pretty polarized. Latinos don't always neatly fit into the nation's two-party system. And, and the survey showed that Latinos in some ways are charting their own course. In fact, he says, surveys he's looked at show many Latinos don't see much of a difference between the two parties. But the reason why Latinos are so different is mostly because neither party has sustained any meaningful outreach to these communities. Back in South Texas, there are some community groups, namely a nonpartisan group called Lupe, that has been plugging away for years at getting these voters engaged. On this day, Joaquin Garcia and his team are letting folks know that an election is coming up. 
Romero Vega was among a small number of people Garcia talked to that day. Tiene dos minutos. Ah, bueno, en un minuto los vemos entonces. Garcia asked Vega if he has time for a few questions. The first is whether he's prepared to vote this fall. Una para preguntarle, verdad, si si ya está listo para votar en estas próximas elecciones. Okay. Um, este, pues todavía no, todavía no, no muy bien, no, no, no sé no ni, muy bien. No, no sé ni quién está corriendo ni. ni... Vega says that he has no idea what's going on or who's running. So Garcia leaves him with some basic information about how to vote. Later, Garcia says he's actually a little surprised considering all the ads and attention in South Texas lately that a lot of people in the area don't even know an election is coming up. We don't know why that is. I mean, they keep, you know, repeating it on TV and on, on the radio stations. But, I mean, a lot of these people, you know, have two, three jobs. They're not paying attention to elections. Their thing is getting money to sustain their families. So sometimes they don't see politics as, as a priority for their needs. And this is not a small obstacle for Republicans in Texas, says Brandon Roddinghouse with the University of Houston. That's the biggest challenge that Republicans face in terms of trying to get a vote stabilized and get them to motivate towards the Republican candidates. Besides competitive races in South Texas, Republicans are hoping Latinos will, particularly in rural areas, help reelect Republicans in statewide offices this year. That includes Governor Greg Abbott as he faces a challenge from Democrat Beto O'Rourke. Ashley Lopez, NPR News, McAllen, Texas. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, unpacking question two on the Massachusetts ballot. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series. The L.A. Philharmonic performs Mahler's First Symphony and the Boston premiere of Gabriela Ortiz's Altar de Cuerda, October 23rd at Symphony Hall. Learn more at CelebritySeries.org. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. A set of big gains to finish the week on Wall Street. The Dow rose 2.5%, 749 points to close at 31,083. S&P gained about 2 and 4 tenths percent. It finished at 37.53. The Nasdaq closed 2 and 3 tenths of a percent higher to end the day at 10,860. Union truck drivers for the region's largest food distributor, Cisco, are going back to work Sunday after they reached a contract agreement with the company yesterday. The truck driver's strike lasted nearly three weeks and shut down operations at the Cisco facility in Plimpton. Cisco distributes food to schools, hospitals, and senior living facilities. It's 619. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. 
The Boston Book Festival kicks off Friday, October 28th and runs through Saturday. WBUR hosts will be there. Details are at WBUR.org slash events. Clear skies tonight, a nice night ahead. Light breezes, lows about 46. Tomorrow, mostly sunny again, inching all the way to 80, or make that to 68. Sunday should be cloudier and colder, close to 60 with showers in the afternoon. 60 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Voters in Massachusetts can cast a ballot for the November election in person starting tomorrow. One of the ballot questions concerns dental insurers. It asks whether dental insurers can be made to spend the majority of what they make in premiums on patient care. There is a backstory about how question two ended up on the ballot. WBR's Gabriella Emanuel is here to fill us in. Hi, Gabriella. Hi there. So let's start off with the basics. Just what would ballot question two do if it's passed? Ballot question two would require that dental insurers put at least 83% of what they get in premiums toward actual dental care and initiatives to improve the quality of care. They wouldn't be able to use that money to pay for their own administrative costs or employee or executive salaries. Now, this kind of system already exists for health insurers under Obamacare. But if this ballot measure passes, Massachusetts would be the first state to have it in place for dental insurance. Now, the measure would also require dental insurance companies to release more financial information. Right now, the public data are so limited, we don't actually know how much dental insurers spend on patient care, although we do have that information for health insurers. So this sounds like more regulations on the insurance industry or the dental insurance industry. Um, Are dental insurance companies on board with this? No, they are not. The No campaign is backed by dental insurers. They warn that costs of dental care will increase if the ballot measure passes and some people could lose their coverage. But the yes side of this ballot question is backed by dentists. They refute those claims and they say it will help ensure customers get good value for their dental insurance and will increase accountability for insurers. Evan Horowitz at Tufts University has done some analysis of this, and he says this measure could increase prices, but he says he doesn't see a big jump. Horowitz says the crux of the question is who gets the money patients pay for insurance? Is it dentists or insurers? It's not clear that this ballot initiative was ever designed really to solve a problem for patients. It's designed to intervene in an ongoing dispute between insurers and dentists. It's about where the money in the world of dental insurance, the world of dental care goes, how it gets distributed. And, you know, this is a pretty technical question being put to voters. How did it end up on the ballot in the first place? Yeah, there is quite a story here. It all goes back to one orthodontist, Mohab Rizkala. He is based in Somerville, and he told me that he's, quote, at war with dental insurers. This all started about a decade ago. I made it personal and perhaps even spiritual decision that I was going to solve the dental insurance problem for the nation. Rizkala says he believes large dental insurers have funneled millions of dollars in profits to their parent companies, despite the fact that many are nonprofits. Also, he says his patients aren't able to get the dental care they need because it's not covered by insurance. 
he is particularly concerned about the state's Medicaid dental program, which is administered by a third party that's called DentaQuest, which is a sister company of Delta Dental. He says it's reduced coverage for patients with low incomes. Your lower jaw could be attached to your foot and they would say you don't need dental care. I mean, the severity of these problems that were not being covered were crazy. They had no scientific basis. And so I sued them. Reese Kala is a litigious guy. He sued multiple times. He's also tried to get lawmakers to act. And so now he's brought this to voters. When it became clear that this was going to be on the ballot, we saw groups like the American Dental Association and the Massachusetts Dental Society get on board. They say they hope this is a model for other states to follow. How does uh, Delta Dental respond to the allegations that it's reaping profits while limiting benefits for patients? Yes. So I reached out to the company and they sent me to Doug Rubin, who is working on the No on Two campaign. He says these claims are wrong. And he reiterated their argument that this ballot measure would increase prices and decrease uh, dental coverage. Although, again, outside experts don't think it will have that big of an effect on the system at all. But here's Rubin of the No campaign. This is one person's personal grievance here. And unfortunately, that personal grievance will have very negative impacts for anybody who has dental insurance in Massachusetts. I should add that the state attorney general's office has sued Rizkala, saying he defrauded Medicaid and kept patients wearing braces longer than necessary so he could reap financial benefits. Rizkala, in turn, says this is retaliation for the times he's sued. So as you can tell, it's a longstanding and messy fight behind question two. And thank you for telling us about it. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel, thank you again. Thank you. And our WBUR voter guide parses out all the ballot questions. Go to WBUR.org. There was a rare moment of unity at the U.N. Security Council today when all 15 members voted to impose sanctions on armed gangs in Haiti. Gangs have brought the country to a standstill, just as Haitians are trying to cope with an outbreak of cholera. But diplomats are still debating whether it's time for an international intervention, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Jimmy Cherizier, who goes by the nickname Barbecue, is now on a U.N. sanctions list. All 15 Security Council members back the resolution that singles him out and sets up a committee to add more names to a blacklist. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield calls it a first step. We're sending a clear message to the bad actors that are holding Haiti hostage. The international community will not stand idly by while you wreak havoc on the Haitian people. Cherizier, who runs an alliance of gangs, has been blocking the main fuel depot in the capital, Port-au-Prince, and demanding the resignation of Haiti's prime minister. He's been on a U.S. sanctions list for the past couple of years, but that hasn't made much of a difference, according to Brian Concanon, who runs a nonprofit called the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti. There are politicians and wealthy business people who are supporting the gangs and profiting from them and using them. And Haitians are saying, look, if you're going to do effective sanctions, you need to go up the ladder to include people that have have some aura of respectability but are involved in crime. That thought is echoed by Robert Fatton, a professor at the University of Virginia. He says the gangs are a symptom of the crisis in Haiti, not the cause. The gangs are in existence because some members of the political class and the economic class have nurtured them 
and also because of the extreme poverty that exists in Haiti. In other words, uh, poor people have very few alternatives. Uh, they become bandits. It's one way of surviving in a disparate situation. He says Haitians need to come up with their solutions. The current government is calling for an armed intervention, but U.S. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield had to drop any reference to that in order to get today's sanctions resolution passed. We must build on these efforts to address another immediate challenge, to help restore security and alleviate the humanitarian crisis in Haiti. She and her Mexican counterpart are working on another Security Council resolution that would endorse what she calls a non-UN mission that would be limited in scope. U.S. officials are talking to countries in the region about how that might look. Concanon says past interventions have failed, and this could too. An intervention at, in the current context is, is likely to be a deadly waste of money. It also requires more diplomatic legwork at the U.N. China's ambassador says the international community has to be prudent, and Russia's ambassador made clear that his country only backed today's resolution because it was narrowly focused and didn't mention calls for an international force. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're headed for a nice night. Clear skies tonight, lows about 46 degrees. If you're going to row in the head of the Charles Regatta this weekend or watch, tomorrow is looking pretty good. Sunday, not so much. Tomorrow, full sunshine, light breezes, highs around 68. And then Sunday falling to 62 degrees with mostly cloudy skies, the chance of rain Sunday afternoon, then more clouds ahead for Monday. 56 degrees now in the Boston area at 6.30. Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good.